You guys are glad to just be awake in the morning right now, aren't you, man? As I know it's a long night, so glad you guys are here. Thanks for joining us online. We're just grateful that you would just tune in uh, to see what God's up to. Hey, two things before we get into the message. Number one, I want to talk a little bit about Compassion Sunday last week. Um, last week, you know, we had... Uh, had this vision that we were going to sponsor a church through Compassion International in Chinandegua, Nicaragua, and that we would sponsor all the kids in that particular project. And so we had 141 kids that we needed to sponsor, and we did not. We sponsored 251 kids. So come on, somebody. So, so just to kind of put some numbers to that, you know, that's roughly $115,000 that we mobilize for kingdom purposes. But hold on just a second. Let me tell you this. That gets our total, the total sponsored through our church is over 2,208 kids, which comes about to be a dollar amount over the last 15 years of almost $7 million that you guys have mobilized for kingdom purposes. It's pretty awesome. Listen, um, as you saw coming in the auditorium, you can grab a packet, sponsor a kid. We still have some kids um, that we want to get sponsored. Also, you can uh, text Stone Creek to the number you see on your screen, 83393, and um, you can sponsor a child with compassion. And it will be one of the greatest investments that you will ever make, all of the differences um, that you're going to make in those kids' lives. So that's announcement number one. Announcement number two, or thing number two I wanted to hit before we got into the message today was just two words. Go Braves. Come on. <laughs> I feel a little trivial doing that, but it just doesn't happen often. So you got to take advantage of the opportunities that you get. Am I right? Um, so if you don't know, the Atlanta Braves are a baseball team. And, uh, <laughs> and the reason you don't know about them is yes, that's why. Um, but we are launching this series today called Ghost Stories. Let me hear you say Ghost Stories ghost stories just in honor of uh you know halloween actually falls on a sunday this year and we thought what better way to kind of teach some truth around some things that surround halloween like ghost stories now 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 when i was growing up scary movies weren't really that scary i don't know if you've noticed this but like now they have movies like insidious and sinister and some of the other crazy things that are really scary but when i was growing up i can remember the scariest movie that i ever saw was sixth sense Anybody see Sixth Sense? It was like a, back in 1962, something like that. Um, but Sixth Sense, I see dead people. And it was scary. And I can remember there was this one scene where, they, where the little boy, Haley Joel Osment, walks into the kitchen and his grandmother is standing at the sink. And, and she's standing there. And when she turns around to face him, it is a very scary scene if you remember that scene. And, and th that very week, there was a noise downstairs at my house about 2 a.m. And so I go downstairs and I'm going, as I'm going downstairs, I'm looking right into the kitchen at the kitchen sink. And I see the grandmother standing in my kitchen. And I turn around and I run back upstairs and I'm like, Debbie, somebody needs you downstairs. <laughs> scared me to what? Scared me to death. That's right. Scared me to death. And we have this phrase that surrounds death. And death is usually very scary to people. I mean, we don't like to talk about death. We don't like to think about death. We don't want to buy life insurance because it has to deal with our death. We don't want to, we don't want to uh, get a will drawn up because it has to do with our death. And because we don't like to talk about it, one thing that can happen is we have some misconceptions about heaven and about hell. And so I'm going to talk today about heaven and hell. Next week, we're going to talk about demons and angels. But today is about heaven and about hell. And we have some misconceptions. Some misconceptions about heaven would be something like, you know, heaven is just like uh, Cupid and clouds and hell is like P 
pitchforks and uh, Donald Trump or Joe Biden, depending on your uh, political platform, right? Like that's what hell looks like the opposite. For, for some people, hev- heaven is going to be, you know, where good people go and hell is where people go who are worse than I am. That's what we reserve hell for. For, for many people, heaven is, heaven is forever, but hell is just like a really long time out that eventually I'll get out of if I do good enough. And so we have some misconceptions about heaven and some misconceptions about hell. And they keep us from living the best life possible. Amen. They keep us from understanding what our life is about. And they keep us living in these really small, trivial, petty stories when when God's story is available to us. And we spend a lot of time building our own small kingdom um, Uh, obsessed with our own small issues when when God's kingdom is at stake, when God's kingdom is offered to us, when we begin to think about what happens next. And when we begin to think about what happens next, it really changes the hope that we have. You see, your heart was made for more. Your heart was made for more. And here's how you know that, because you're always looking forward to something. Always. It's why you look at your phone 110 times a day. Maybe some good news will come or somebody will Apple pay me something and I didn't expect it. You're looking forward to a next vacation. You're looking forward to a new relationship. You're looking forward to a new job. You're looking forward to a new career. You're always looking forward, which just whispers to our soul that we were made for more. And what if you could live with a hope that was able to drive you through difficult circumstances, but also to help you complete the purpose for which God has created you to accomplish. So we're going to take a look today at heaven, and we're going to take a look today at hell. I'm going to start with hell, because that's the least fun to talk about, and then we're going to to look at heaven. So let's grab our Bibles. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16 today. Luke chapter 16 today. Now, Now, as you grab your Bible, one thing I just want to point out, I have met so many people over the last couple months that have never studied the Bible, don't understand. So when I say things like Luke chapter 16, they have no idea. And so just a little bit around how the Bible's organized. Luke is written by a guy named Luke about the life of Jesus. And so you can go to the table of contents, you can look up Luke, or you can go to your phone and you can look up Luke if you have a Bible app. Then you'll notice I say a number like number 16. 16 is kind of like the chapter. So it just helps you to find it. It's just like an index system. And then I'm talking about verse 19. So you can always know where to turn. And we're always going to have them on the screen, but also opportunity for you to know exactly where to go in the Bible because we want you to be able to read it every single week. And so now we're going to look at uh, the story that you'll see labeled, titled, The Rich Man and Lazarus. And in verse 19, it, Jesus is telling this, it's a parable about a guy named Lazarus. There's several Lazaruses in the Bible, if you're aware. This is not any of those. This is just one just for this particular story. And it says this, as there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Let me hear you say sumptuously three times really fast. Just kidding. Uh, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Now, now he, what Jesus is doing here is he's talking about this rich man and he's not talking about this rich man because he's evil. He's just trying to point out that this man had his own agenda. This man was building his own kingdom and that he was very rich. The fact that he wore purple meant that he was, uh, and he lived in a gated community, um, much like a, what a gated community would mean to us today is, He had everything he needed and he was self-sufficient and didn't need God. So we have the rich man. But then he talks about Lazarus. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. So just get that image in your mind. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. 
just like an animal would. Even the dogs came and licked his sores just to make it, just to feel better. And so we get this contrast that Jesus is trying to point out between someone who's self-sufficient and someone who, who can only depend on God. So it goes on in verse 22. It says, the poor man died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side or what we would call heaven. I'm going to unpack that, as I said, a little bit later. The rich man also died and he was buried and in Hades or hell being in torment. So you see that torment means to be tortured. He lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So this rich man is in hell and he's looking across this chasm and he sees Abraham uh, where he wants to be. And he sees this poor man that, that he, all, he, he never saw before because he never saw him at his gate when he should have seen him to help him. And so he says this, he says, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, and now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Anguish obviously just means this agony that never stops, this agony that can't be alleviated. Besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that's been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So once you're here in this place, you don't get out. It's forever. Then he goes on and he says, then I beg you, Father, to send to him my, to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that they may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, meaning Moses, meaning the first five books of the Old Testament and the prophets, meaning what they wrote. Let them hear them. In other words, they, they told you how to live. They told you how to worship God. They told you what to focus on and that didn't work. But then the rich man says this, but no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, to him, if they didn't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Meaning, foreshadowing Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the fact that even though he rose from the dead, people still won't believe and it won't change their mind. And so you have this stark story that feels a little depressing, but it also feels a little real and like something we should pay attention to. And the, the truth is like we're, we, we're all going to die. We know this, but we don't like to think about it because we don't know what to do with it. And, and so we have some ideas about what happens after we die. Like one, one view is just the naturalist view is that you're just your body and that there's no soul and spirit. And that once you die, you just die and your body's gone and it's just over. The lights go out and the curtain comes down on your life. Now, I think there's something inside all of us that says, ah, I think there's more life than that. There, there's what's called universalism. And universalism says everybody gets to go. Like all roads lead to Rome. Maybe you've heard that. And, and we like that one because it, we know we're going to get there. And then there's some people that we're not sure is going to be there. We can just assume they're there. And that makes us feel better about ourselves. Because we have no category to do with people that actually don't go to heaven. The problem with universalism is the Bible. And we're going to unpack that in just a second. So you have naturalism. You have universalism. You have um, reincarnation. Uh, that you come, you are born or as one particular animal form, and depending on your karma, you can graduate 
to be a human. Like, what bad would you have to do to come back as a cat? Like, I, don't, I have no idea. So you have, some of you cat lovers are hating me right now. I'm trying to lighten the mood. There's another one called annihilationism. Annihilationism just means that good people or people who meet the requirements go to heaven. Everybody else just gets destroyed so there's no suffering. There's also this idea of purgatory. As if there's this holding tank that you die and you go to this holding tank where you pay off your sins and then you can move on to to heaven, which is not found anywhere in the Bible either. So what is found in the Bible, what we see in this story is there's two options, heaven and hell. These are the options, heaven and hell. So let me unpack hell for just a minute because I know hell's the one that we don't like to believe in. It kind of violates our sophisticated Western sensibilities, doesn't it? that there would actually be consequences for our actions. And that's not a culture we grow up in. But there are consequences for our decisions. Now, one thing, as I get into this, I want to be really careful. Because some of you have heard of hell, and you don't like to think about it or believe in it, because the person that was telling you about hell was acted like they were enjoying telling you you may go there. That they were actually happy about that. And my goal today was to keep you from going there. That this would not be something that would happen, but that also you'd realize the severity of it. Now, if you have this tendency to maybe question the reality of hell, just think about a couple of things. Number one, we all can agree that there is evil in the world. Amen? Like we all know, we look around, we read the papers, we see the news, we've experienced it. Like we know that there's evil. And, And if there is evil in the world, there's some options. You can say God caused it and you'd be wrong. Or or you can see maybe Satan is behind it and you would be right. And so Satan is behind evil in this world. And you should be suspicious of anyone who tells you there's no such thing as judgment or consequences for our decisions. This was the first lie that Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden. You know, in in the book of Genesis chapter 3, when God told Adam and Eve not to eat of one particular uh, fruit from one particular tree, Satan comes up to them and says, you, you, you won't die? Did he say you would die? Surely you won't die. In other words, there are no consequences for your actions because God knows that if you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him, knowing the difference between good and evil. Like there's, there's no wrath of God. There's no consequences. And, and we know that there are. And hell is a consequence for those who don't choose Christ. Now, now another reason why we should put our eyes on hell and think about it is Jesus taught about hell 13% of the time. In 13% of the writings of Jesus' words, he dealt with hell. Half of the parables or the stories that Jesus told to, to make a point dealt with hell. Uh, Jesus is too loving to talk about hell. Let me ask you this question. If you're driving down the road on a rainy night, and I know the bridge is out, and I don't call you and tell you, is that very loving? The most loving thing I can do is to tell you the bridge is out, and you're headed for destruction. So this is what we see Jesus do when he talks about hell. It's not his primary motivating factor, although it's pretty motivating. But it's his greatest act of love is to help us know where life is. Hell is a real place. It's not imaginary. 
It's not, it's not something that we go through here. It's not a euphemism for a bad day. Hell's a real place, and real people go there. Hell is real. Now, now why did God create hell? Like, that's a good question. Why did God create hell? Now, over in Matthew, another guy who wrote about Jesus and Jesus' life, in Matthew chapter 25, verse uh, 41, Jesus said this. He says, he, he's, he's separated. He's talking about the end times. And he says, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, so, so hell was created for devils, for the devil, for Satan, for Lucifer, and his angels or demons. Now, we're going to do angels and demons next week. But let me just kind of fill you in on kind of the, the macro story that happened. God creates heaven and earth, and he says what? It's good. Like, this is good. He creates Adam and Eve, and he says, this is good. This is very good. And Satan is an angel in the presence of God. He actually is the angel closest to God. He's the most powerful angel. And he decides he wants to be God. So he rebels. He takes a third of the angels with him. And leads a rebellion. And because of the rebellion, there has to be consequences. There has to be punishment. Imagine God says, oh, never mind. It's okay. Like that would violate God's character. Because God's character is holy. God's character is just. And we like just or judgment as long as it's for somebody else, just not for us. So God creates hell just in the same way that we create prisons for criminals to go to. God creates hell for Satan and demons because they didn't follow God and they rebelled against him. And so people who rebel against God find themselves in this place called hell or Hades. That's why he created hell. Now, now let me just say this one. I'm going to deal with this one issue. and It's a little bit of a side note, but I get this question often. When someone commits suicide, do they go to hell? Suicide is not the unforgivable sin. If someone were to commit suicide, as short-sighted as it is, as sinful and selfish as it is, and if you're thinking about that today, we should, we should talk. It's not the unforgivable sin. And I know when I've officiated funerals from suicide victims, that's the first question the family will ask me. What sends you to hell is not a specific sin because Jesus died for our sins. Amen right there? What sends you to hell is not following Jesus, not accepting that he came for our salvation. Now, now what exactly is hell as we see in the Bible? How is it described? What does it look like? Now, there's a word <clears throat> called Gehenna that Jesus uses to kind of to give us an idea, a picture of hell. Now, in the Bible, Gehenna was the town dump, and it was outside of the city. And originally, it had been a place where um, they, uh, centuries before and other generations, they had offered human sacrifices. And so they would have looked on this area just as despicable and deplorable and damnable. And so this became the town dump where they took all their trash, where they literally would take dead bodies, and it burned all day long. And every now and then, if the wind hit just right, you could smell it across the city. 
Have you ever been maybe driving through somewhere and you got this crazy smell of like a chicken farm, something like that? Just terrible. Like they would get this smell. And so they would use it just to remind them of this place of eternal burning, of eternal torment, of a place that was deplorable, a place that was despicable, to talk about hell. And there's other words for hell in the Bible. This is just the one that they used that had a physical representation for. Now, even as we saw in, our, in the story for today, when he talked about being in torment and being in agony, the, the, the thing that we should start out by knowing is that in hell, there is absolutely nothing good from God. There is nothing good from God. You're separated from God, so there is no good. Now, now, even people today that don't follow God still experience the goodness of God. Like, you got to come to church today. You thought it was good until now, obviously. But you got to experience getting up and breathing and eating and getting dressed. You got to experience a sunrise. You'll hopefully get to experience a sunset today. You get to experience relationships and a job and having enough You get to experience a nice home and a nice car. All of that is attributed not to your own ingenuity, but to a God who is good. So even those who don't follow God experience the goodness of God. But in hell, there's not even that. So it's a place with no hope. It's a place of torture. It's a place of agony. It's a place of shame. Where where all your deeds are exposed and all those insecurities you have... They are what's going to become the truest thing about you. And you'll live with this sense of shame that's exposed that everybody seems to know about. It's a a place of utter and complete darkness where you can't even see your hand in front of your face. A few years ago, I had opportunity. I was in San Francisco, and so we toured Alcatraz. And they'll take you and they'll put you in solitary confinement for a brief moment. And it's the darkest room you've ever been in. You can't see your hand in front of your face. And this is the type of darkness that we experience in hell. It, there's also unending fear. Like you think your anxiety is bad now. There's just this unending fear that overtakes you. And, and it's forever. It never ends. And this is the description that we have in the Bible about hell. Now, now, now you may be prone to say, I don't believe in a God who... Who what? Who does something you would do? Who doesn't do things you wouldn't do? And what can happen is we want to remake God in our own image. And that doesn't change the truth of who God is. Holy and just and loving. And and we would put our logic up against his. I love what Piper says. John Piper, he's a pastor, he says this about this. He says, you know, when we look at the Bible... And would want to challenge it rather than be changed by it, we would do good to put our hands over our mouth and listen. You know, if I don't believe in gravity and I jump off the building, guess what's going to happen? And I can say I don't believe in gravity as much as I want to. It doesn't change the truth of gravity. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, has a plan for us not to go to hell. It's called the gospel, right? This is the beauty of heaven is that we don't have to go there. But the reality is people could go there. Hey, if you're a Christ follower, one thing you should know right now is this should increase the urgency of your mission for people, that right now God is probably bringing people to mind for you that you should connect with and talk to and ask. 
And I don't know that the best method is for you to go to someone and say, hey, you're going to hell. Let me tell you how to avoid it. But I do think a loving conversation about their eternal future, about something that's going to be beyond the trivialities of this life is in order if you love them. It should increase the urgency of our mission because God has created a way out. This is why we love the gospel, right? This is why we love Jesus because he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. I would apologize for crying, but I'm not going to on this time. Everything that was made was created by him, whether visible or invisible, whether in heaven or on earth, whether rulers, authorities, powers, or dominions. Everything was created for him and through him. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. Amen. Like Jesus rose from the dead. And maybe you're not here, maybe you're here today and haven't quite fully come to believe that. I would just encourage you to follow him and just see what you find. Because we have undeniable proof that Jesus rose from the dead to give us a way to get to this place that we call heaven. Like what is heaven? You know, when we just, we just sang Amazing Grace, um, when we've been there, 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when it first begun. And I love that song, but sometimes it can make us think that heaven is one big long worship service and that all we're going to do is sing the whole time we're in heaven. And some of you are like, ah, yeah, that sounds like hell to me. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> now, you should practice because we're going to sing in heaven. But it's so much more than that. So let me just paint in the few minutes we have together a picture of what we're all really living for. You know, in Matthew chapter 19, in Matthew chapter 19, verse, I think it's 28, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man, meaning Jesus, will sit on this glorious throne. Now look at that word new for a minute. So what that word new means is to begin again. It's, it's, a, it's a compound word where we get our word Genesis from. Begin again. Because for so many people what we think is the earth's going to be torched, burned up, and then we're just going to start over. But what the Bible actually teaches is that we're going to begin Again, God is going to restore and renew and remake everything and restore it back to its original condition the way he intended it to be at the very beginning. You know, you had, this, you had, you had Eden that we were going to live in and we got to walk with God in the cool of the day until we broke it through our sins. So everything will be recreated. Everything will be restored. Because as you begin to think about life, it feels like Life can be one long series of goodbyes, doesn't it? You say goodbye to your childhood. You say goodbye to your home. You say goodbye to people. You say goodbye to phases of life. It feels like that there's a lot of goodbyes. But what the promise of being remade, of renewal, of made new, of restoration, is that there is no loss, that God restores everything. The people you haven't seen for a while, God will restore that. The brokenness that you've experienced, the tragedy, it says that the glory of God is so much greater than anything we experience. It will pale in comparison to how great and to how good he is. This is what God is going to be up to. 
And so what, what does that look like? I'm, I'm going to read just one quick passage out of the book of Isaiah, just to describe what earth looks like when it's been remade. It says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Now, we have all seen Little Red Riding Hood, and we know that the wolf is bad and it's going to kill somebody. But look, a wolf and a lamb, they lie down together. The leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. So here's the image you have. You have this big roaring lion with this big mane and big teeth and it's going to kill you, and you've got a little girl walking, holding it on a leash, just walking around like, come on, kitty cat, let's go lay down. This is the image we have, that there's such peace, there's such harmony, there's such goodness, and that the earth is full of the goodness of God. He goes on to say, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Yes, that's a snake, cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Man, when, we get, when, we, when everything is recreated... It's just going to be the best of what we experienced here and then more. So think about this. There's music in heaven. People will write music. People will play music. People will play your favorite music because that's how you're here at all the time. And the things you don't like, you won't hear. Man, there's going to be adventure in heaven. We'll be able to explore and to learn in this great creation that God has given us. Man, man we'll be able to learn in heaven but here's probably the best part. Well, the second best part. The best part is that Jesus is there. Amen. The second best part, probably, is this idea, this longing in our soul that we have, that we're made for more, it will finally be realized. It will finally be fulfilled. This purpose that we think we want to accomplish, this potential that we can never seem to get out, this idea that uh, what am I going to be when I grow up, when we, when we experience this renewal, this restoration, we'll, we'll, finally, we'll finally be there. We won't have all these insecurities. We won't have all these questions. We won't have all these doubts. We won't have all this confusion. And we just have clarity. But we'll have understanding. Now, now one thing I would caution you on is some people will say this, man, when I get to heaven, I'm going, and I'm, I'm going to ask Jesus this question. Like, this is the question I'm going to ask you. I'm like, eh, you're not really going to do that. <laughs> that that's going to be a bad idea for you. And will we know everything? No. God is omniscient, but we'll know what we need to know. We'll know what we need to know. We've been looking for this all of our lives. And this is the promise that we have and the hope that we have. You know, in Revelation, we get another image of what happens. You know, we, we don't just go up into heaven in some far-off place where we're floating on clouds. Actually, we have this new city, and God brings heaven and earth together the way it was originally intended to be. In Revelation chapter 21, John is a guy who's writing this. And he, saw, he says, I, I, saw, I, saw, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place or the home. See, heaven's a home. Heaven is a new home. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither there shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And don't you love going home? 
Like there's just something about home that provides stability, provides peace, provides encouragement. You know, you know, if you've ever been to the Atlanta airport, you know, as you come up that big, long escalator and you get off the escalator, sometimes there's families there waiting for, pe- waiting for a family member to come home. Maybe there's little kids there. You know, maybe there's a wife or a husband or a mom or a dad. And you can tell that the person they're waiting on has been gone a long time. Man, they just welcome them. And, and then there's some people you can see, they, they're walking really fast. And you wonder why. And you know why? Because they want to get home. Because they know what's waiting for them when they get home. The beautiful thing about home is that there's people there that we love and care about. There's people there that we want to be around, that we want to encourage. And this will be the beautiful part of heaven. Man, we're going to know each other. We'll be able to remember each other. And we'll be able to be reunited with people that have died before us. You know, I can remember when one of my kids was having a struggle. Um, you know, he was around seven with this possibility of dying. He was just afraid, as anybody would be. And the one thing he was afraid of, he says, I won't know anybody there. And so my wife and all her brilliance reminded him that his granddad had already gone on before him and he'd be waiting for him there. And this is the hope that we have. We get a new home. And the home that we have is where people are that we love. And you know, when you go home, you know what you do? You celebrate. There's joy in heaven. You know, C.S. Lewis says this, that joy is the serious business of heaven. Like this is what we're created for, is that joy is going to override everything. That's why when he writes in Revelation, he's going to wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more, no more mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. Man, it's just going to be joy. And I love this idea of celebration when it comes to heaven. You know, we get this image. Like last night here, uh, our students, they had this tables put all together all the way from this hallway to about right here and it looked like one big table you know one of the images we have of heaven is just this banquet table where we get to sit around and we get to celebrate and raise a glass to king jesus and we get to tell stories about what he did and the compassion kids that we sponsored and the lives that we saw change and the marriages that were restored like this is the celebration that we have and we should not lose sight of that And when you know that's the joy that's coming for you, it changes how you live. You know, I I love Lewis. I love a lot about C.S. Lewis. Another thing that he said, he says, those Christians who did the most in this life are precisely those who thought most about the next. This is the joy that we have. It's the hope that we have. You know, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18 to 19, The author says this, we who have fled for refuge, right? We might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And we have this as a sure and steadfast, what? Anchor for our souls. This is the anchor of our lives. A couple more quick points, and then I'm going to close, which means absolutely nothing. I'm going to talk as long as I want to. Stephen was a martyr in the Bible, in the book of Acts. And Stephen, it says, as he dies, he looks up to heaven. And it says he sees Jesus standing there, not sitting down, but standing there. 
as if, as if he's applauding him. And it says that Stephen's face shone like an angel. Now, now as a pastor, there are many days, like my, I feel like I have the easiest job in the world and the best job in the world. And I know that we all have our own challenges in every job. But there's one area that I've been able to experience probably a little more than the average person. And that's being there when somebody dies. And I've been in hospital rooms when people have died. I've been in living rooms. I've been in bedrooms. And just to experience that. And I count it as an honor and a privilege. And one thing that I can tell you from personal experience is that people who, who die with the hope of Christ, oh, it's different. It's different. I'm not saying it's not hard. I'm not saying that you don't lose some dignity. I'm not saying it's not ugly at times. But, but there's a different sense of joy deep in their soul. And we should all know that, that there's coming a day we're going to die. You're going to die. I'm going to die. And that's not going to be the end. That we get this experience through the grace of God to live eternally in the presence of God. And it starts now. It starts now. And that will actually be the beginning of our story. There's a, Lewis obviously wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. And some of you are familiar with that. But it's a series of books about these four kids. And they go through this wardrobe or painting at times. And they go into this place called Narnia, which represents what it means, kind of the afterlife, kind of like heaven. And at the end of the last book, three of the kids have been involved in a train wreck, and they've actually died. And here's how Lewis ends this series of books. He says, there was a railway, railway accident, said Aslan. Aslan is the lion who represents Jesus. He says, your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it, dead. That term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is morning. Then he says this. And, and for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read. And which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's the image. Listen, don't let anyone cheat you out of this hope. What would it look like to wake up with this hope every morning, knowing that the renewal of all things is just around the corner? Like what kind of happiness could drive you and attract people to want to understand the gospel? What kind of joy could undergird you through times that are difficult and struggling? Man, what kind of purpose could this give you if you held on to that hope? Listen, heaven is our home and heaven is our hope. Let's pray together. So just in the stillness of the moment, recognizing that Jesus died for our sins and was resurrected so that we could experience being with him in his presence and his goodness, 
I just would ask you, like, is that a decision that you've made? Is that the life that you're living? Is that the hope that you have? And if it's not, I just want to lead you in a prayer today, a prayer of commitment that will change your life. And that prayer of commitment is just to ask God to forgive you of your sins and to place your trust in Jesus for your eternal hope. And I'm just going to lead you in that prayer. And if that's you today, just just pray silently in your seat right now. Dear God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. I confess that I've lived for my own agenda. I built my kingdom and not your kingdom. I choose to follow Jesus today to forgive me of my sins and to lead me into eternity. You know, we just our heads bowed and eyes closed. If that was you, I'm just going to ask you. I'm going to count to three. I'm going to ask you to slip your hand in the air. If this is the day you're tired of playing games, man, you finally, it's finally settled in your soul that you want to follow Jesus. I'm just going to count to three and ask you to lift your hand in the air. One, two, three. Amen. That's awesome. Amen. That's awesome. You know, the Bible says that when one sinner repents that we should celebrate. So let's just do that right now. <clears throat> God, we just know that heaven is something we don't think about enough. And sometimes in the midst of struggle and busyness and to-do lists and tasks and jobs and relationships and tragedies, God, we forget. We forget this world's not our home. God, that there's a place waiting for us. Oh, with no more ICUs or morgues, no more bad news, man, no more no more ant bites, no more wild animals, God, man, no more oncologists, no more doctor's appointments, God, no more pain, no more tears, no more struggle, God. And help us just to remember that and to place our hope firmly there. And God, that it would change how we live today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.